This episode of the Third Sector Podcast is sponsored by Ansvar. Ansvar protects more than 17,000 charities, big and small, across the UK. Their work with key organisations and charity bodies, as well as being owned by a charity themselves, means an unparalleled level of expertise across a wide range of topics, from governance to fundraising. Ask your insurance broker today for a quote for your charity. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing conspiracy theories and misinformation and what the charity sector can do to tackle them. And we'll be carrying that on into this week's Good News Bulletin, but we'll also be hearing about a very good boy with some life-saving talents. But first, Emily, what is the daftest thing you have ever fallen for? Like something you actually wholeheartedly believed to be true at the time and now realise was like obvious nonsense? Well, okay, I can only give you part of this because I still refuse to believe that this is actually obvious nonsense. Uh, But until about a month ago, I believed that Arsenal Football Club was named after Arsene Wenger. Um, (laughs) That's so cute. I don't, I I just, I don't really see the stupidity here. I mean, I've only ever had a passing interest in football. But as a child of the 90s, he was in charge of the club for 22 years of my 30 years of living and I was you know I would only have been conscious of football at all for you know once I got to about maybe seven years old so essentially basically as long as I was aware of football he was basically in charge and it just seemed altogether weirder to me that Arsenal and Arson shared the same name as a pure coincidence. Yeah. No, I see that. I see the logic of that. That makes a lot of sense. Um, of course, actually, we all know that Arsene Wenger changed his name when he became manager of Arsene, Arsenal Football Club. Oh, and that um, is the reality, yeah, is it? Yeah. Right, of course. That's yeah. not, just to be clear, that's not, that's not true. That was a joke. <laughs> no. Joke klaxon. Uh, so yeah, no, I, I see the logic of that. Yeah, and I just, it only, I only was corrected after mentioning it in passing to my husband. <laughs> and he just gave me a look and he was like, are you serious? And I said, is that not what's happening here? And he was like, no. (laughs) Anyway, I stand by it. I think it's a totally logical thought progression. What about you? Um, So my daftest thing, again, definitely, uh, you know, into my adulthood. So I, um, uh, when I was 18, I uh, went to university and in my first week of university, um, I met my friend Joe, who, who was a good mate of mine. Um, and in my defense, we were both studying drama at uni and he has a shock of black hair and he wears glasses. So, um, he told me, and I don't think he intended to, to lie so much as he was sort of offhand kind of joking. But he told me that he was third in line to play Harry Potter uh, in the films. Uh, like he he got through to sort of the final stage of casting and then Daniel Radcliffe got picked over him and one other guy. And um, I genuinely just thought this was a story that somebody I was meeting at uni was telling me. And I like I went all the way through uni. I actually lived in a flash air with this guy for years. And it was just one day out of nowhere. I just suddenly was thinking about that. And I went, oh, that's not true, is it? 
that's a story that Joe has told me. And I have walked around into my adulthood believing that. Um, so yeah, and I just, I just feel very, very daft because it just, it very patently wasn't true, but there were a lot of reasons it could have been true. Like we were the right age, I guess. Um, I think Daniel Radcliffe, Daniel Radcliffe is the same age as us. And I have seen Joe in a bar with some guy, you know, giving him a bit of nonsense and sort of saying, Oh, you look like Harry Potter. You look like Harry Potter. And then asked his name to which Joe went, Daniel. My name is Daniel and completely deadpanned it. So like, yeah, but um, yeah, so that was, that was my, I believe this thing somebody sarcastically said to me was gospel truth about their life. And I think I actually told people this as like, oh, my mate Joe um, for years. So, so yeah, that, and I, I was a very wide eyed 18 year old. If you can imagine me very kind of, I was very naive. Um, so yeah, that's, that was definitely, uh, one that I think, mm, idiot. Again, my, my arson theory was only corrected a month or so, ago. <laughs> so, you know, you're fine. You're doing fine. But I think it's fair to say that we are at a stage in life where almost anybody who has a social media account will have been exposed to at least one conspiracy theory or one form of misinformation at some point in the last few years. Yeah. Uh, the internet is full of bizarre ideologies and people who are utterly convinced that one part of the population is actively engaged in lying to the rest of the world about something. You know, you've got the full-blown conspiracy theories about, you know, fake moon landings and flat earth and and sort of, you know, the utter detachment from reality that is QAnon. Um you know, we've also got global warming deniers as well, anti-vaxxers, anti-lockdown protesters who are arguing that the science with which the public is presented cannot be trusted. Absolutely. And um, for charities whose causes overlap with areas where conspiracy theories and misinformation are rife, this can really present some challenges, as the pandemic support charity COVID Aid found out last week. The charity was running a Facebook campaign celebrating those it described as everyday UK heroes during the pandemic. The campaign, which launched in October, allowed the British public to nominate and pay tribute to the individuals doing amazing things to help others through the coronavirus pandemic. And each post included a personalised message of thanks to those nominated. But soon after launching, the charity began receiving a flood of negative responses, and it was eventually forced to stop promoting the campaign over toxic comments by anti-vaxxers and those who believe the pandemic is a hoax. Absolutely. So posters compared the charity's volunteers with Nazis and they accused the charity of, quote, crimes against humanity. It's worth pointing out that those comments seemed to be related to beliefs about the coronavirus vaccine and were directed at the charity, even though its volunteers have absolutely nothing to do with vaccine administration. Uh, the trolls also laughed and mocked someone related to the campaign who had lost both of his parents to coronavirus and they called him a liar. Yeah, I, I really struggle with this bit, to be honest, because um, I, I, I do get having questions and doubt and I get the kind of element of wishful thinking that you know, it would be nice if the virus were a hoax and if this was all a fuss about nothing. But you know, 165,000 people are dead in this country alone. And I personally know two people who have died of coronavirus. And it's, it's the unbelievable ego that it requires to say that because you want something to be the case, then it is the case. And then to take that and turn around to people who are grieving and tell them that not only are they lying, but in fact, they are the ones inflicting suffering on you. Honestly, I think that goes beyond being ill-informed or deceived or you know scared or desperate. I, I think that is monstrous. I think that's actually monstrous. 
it, it's been especially sobering seeing that vaccine and uh, COVID-19 misinformation and, and the devastating real world consequences that the spread of this information has. Um, I was very struck by the Guardian newspaper this week because it has been running a weekly series called Lost to the Virus, which profiles British people who died after contracting COVID-19. And this week, the story of John Ayers, who died at the age of 42, has been one of the most read stories on the paper's website. Um, John Ayers was a fitness fanatic. He competed in triathlons. He was a bodybuilder and a mountain climber. Um, But in the story, his family also describe his scepticism around COVID-19 and particularly around the vaccine, which he refused to take, citing widespread conspiracy theories uh, such as the vaccine having dangerous levels of formaldehyde in it or that it was essentially an experiment. Uh, Now, according to the medical staff who treated John before he died, he said in his last days how much he had regretted not getting that vaccine. And and that is a reason why his family agreed to share his story. And they stressed very much that people who have doubts, you know, about the vaccine and about the virus get their information from medical sources, not the internet. He was a prolific social media user. So to return to COVID aid, to return to the charity that had to shut its campaign down, Michael McLennan, who is the founder and chief executive of the charity, said the comments that they had received were totally hateful. And he said, All we wanted to do was celebrate how great people have been to each other throughout the pandemic, which made this toxicity all the more shocking. Yeah, and he ultimately took the decision that the charity didn't have the time to deal with the abuse, which far outweighed the positive comments. And he said it had been highly distressing and dispiriting for everyone at the charity who had witnessed the negativity over the past month. The charity has left the wall of tributes up on its Facebook page, but has stopped promoting it or actively running the campaign. McLennan described this as a sad indicator of how many people in the UK have been consumed by conspiracy theories and deceived by disinformation. And he said that it's left them worried for what might happen next, particularly when you see the scenes of anti-vaxxer violence in Europe. Yeah. And elsewhere, we've heard this week that in Hastings, a group of people attempted to prevent the RNLI from launching its lifeboat because they were worried the RNLI might go out and save drowning refugees. They apparently formed a line stopping the boats from going in the water and allegedly shouted, don't bring any more of them home, we're full up, to the point where the police had to be called to disperse them and, I mean, hopefully charge them with attempted murder because that is what that was. Um, We'll be talking more about that incident in, oddly enough, the Good News Bulletin later on. Um, I know it's weird, but bear with with us. Um, But for now, you know, the point is that that incident was also fuelled by misinformation. And in this case, the notion that the UK is quote unquote full and that refugees are coming over to sponge benefits. um, And once again, what we're seeing is a charity being mobbed and prevented from carrying out their purpose. So bearing all of this in mind, what can charities do in the face of such attacks and what is the role they have to play in tackling misinformation? Well, to find out more, we spoke to Will Moy, who is the chief executive of the fact-checking charity Full Fact. Uh, Well, Will, thank you very much for joining us. So we've seen this example in recent weeks of a charity that was forced to take down a relatively innocuous campaign celebrating health workers and other COVID heroes as a result of trolling by anti-vaxxers. I mean, do you have any thoughts about why people are so invested in these conspiracy theories that they feel driven to make these comments about charities and individuals and to take these kinds of actions? 
it's sad, isn't it, when we see people tearing down something which is only trying to give credit for people who've gone out of their way to help other people and people are so angry. But actually, that's something that's been studied quite a lot over several decades. We produced a research briefing you can find at fullfact.org slash research, which is all about why people get invested in conspiracist thinking. So not necessarily just believing one conspiracy theory, but people who have a tendency to believe conspiracy theories and believe more than one. And there are some complex bits of a psychology, but there are a few trends that come out of that. One is that people use conspiracy theories to explain the unknown and to get a sense of control over their environment. Um, that's something I think we've very much seen uh, during the pandemic when none of us have felt in control of anything very much. Um, another is that people use it to build a positive image of themselves and their in-group. And one of the things about online abuse is it's very often a sort of pack behavior. Um, you see people praising each other, reinforcing each other when they start to abuse people. Um, and another is that the quality of public debate also matters, something that charities can make a really big contribution to. We know that moments of scandal, which erode trust, and heighten polarization, which turn democracy into something which feels like it's all about winners and losers, both spur conspiracy theories. So those are three reasons, all of which I think we're seeing right now in the UK, making public debate worse, making people more prone to buy into conspiracist thinking. And of course, during the pandemic, people are genuinely trying to look out for their friends and for each other. People are often spreading false information about the pandemic, dangerous, harmful, health-threatening information about the pandemic out of a desire to look after their friends and family. And people feel just as strongly about looking after their friends and family when they are misinformed as they do when they are well-informed. Um, so it's not surprising in a way people get angry when they feel they're being lied to about something as important as the pandemic. Then I guess we just have to recognize that we live at a time when online abuse is a really widespread problem. What you're seeing in this case is the crossover of a pattern of online abuse, which isn't being adequately tackled um, and adequately challenged either by the Internet companies or by the government, crossing over with this conspiracist thinking about vaccines and leading to te tear down people who are just trying to help other people. So it's uh, yet another example of bad information ruining lives, um, damages people's health, uh, it promotes hate, as we're seeing here, um, and it hurts our democracy. And we know that we need much more to be done to tackle bad information and all of these consequences that we're seeing. Everything that you said uh, there, Will, about that pack mentality is is absolutely true. We were talking the other week about how um, pack mentality can lead to online fundraising challenges going viral and that desire to connect. But, you know, it, it's a very, very human trait. And I also really, you know, empathise with what you said about, you know, family members wanting to help and protect the people that they care about. Um, in the early days of the pandemic, a family member got in touch with me and suggested that I wash my hands with neat bleach. Good grief. Yeah. <laughs> Just for the avoidance of doubt, please do not do that. Do not try this at home. Just to say, for the avoidance of all doubt, all right, admittedly, maybe washing your hands in neat bleach 
will get rid of any COVID, but it will also get rid of your hands. It will burn the skin <laughs> off your very hands. Please, please do not wash your hands in neat bleach. But it's exactly like that. It just got forwarded onto me from a WhatsApp chain. And if it's coming from someone you love, then you would think, well, yes, maybe that is the case. So given how pervasive, given how plausible, but also how harmful this kind of dialogue can be, you said charities have a really important part to play in dialogue and in bringing value to these conversations. So what can charities do in the face of attacks that are being fueled by misinformation? I think there's two sides of this. Um, the first is how do you respond when you're dealing with misinformation aimed at your charity, your work, your staff, your volunteers? Um, and the second is what can we all do to make this less of a problem in future? Um, when you're being targeted by misinformation, I think the first thing to do is just keep it in proportion. Very often, actually, we're talking about a small number of voices that can very easily take up more, more of your time than they need to or deserve to. Whenever you stand for anything in public life, you're not going to be universally popular. And sometimes you just need to rise above the noise that's coming at you. So making sure you're not letting your time be t taken up by noisy and hostile voices, I think, is really important. The second thing is to support staff. More and more, we're seeing misinformation and harassment being interlinked. Um, major media organizations that we're talking to, newspaper chains, the BBC, are all setting up programs to support staff who are, are targeted by harassment because they have a public profile. And I think that's an issue of the charity sector too. So if you're experiencing a misinformation campaign, your staff may be being personally affected and personally targeted and making sure you're asking them about their experiences and supporting them with those experiences is really important. Um, and I should say that is much more true of women online um, and people from ethnic minorities online. And um, we need to be really conscious of that different impact and supporting people appropriately. So having sort of set the ground, what do you actually do when somebody's talking rubbish at you? The first thing is, if you find yourself sharing a platform with somebody who is supporting a conspiracy or somebody who is making false claims, it is important to refute them. Don't leave unsubstantiated theories unchallenged. That enables them to settle in people's minds. But refuting them needs to be done a certain way to be most effective. This is the formula. You tell people that the claim is wrong. You tell people why it's wrong. And then you tell people what's actually true. And the psychology behind that, again, it's explained in our research briefings, but the psychology is people need a new story to replace the old story in the head. Simply telling people they're wrong isn't enough to replace the memory structures, the belief structures in people's heads. You actually have to give them a reason why they're wrong and a better answer um, in order for correct information to stay in people's heads. So that's the formula. Tell people that it's wrong. Tell people why it's wrong. Tell people what's actually true. And then the final thing I'd say is talk to full fact. This is what we do day in, day out. We exist to tackle bad information and the harm it does. Um, if you're dealing with these kinds of problems, we may be able to help. And particularly online, we work with most of the major internet companies, our fact-checking is directly embedded in Google, Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, YouTube, um, and we are able to respond to online misinformation. So if you're seeing stuff, uh, particularly on Facebook, which is 
false and provably false, then we may be able to fact check it and actually get those fact checks appearing directly on Facebook. So that's how you might go about responding to a campaign of misinformation directed at you or your cause or your staff. But the other side is what do we do to make public debate better? Because we can't stay in this mire that we currently seem to be stuck in. And it's important, I think, that charities are organizations that help shape public debate and can do a lot to prevent misinformation um, taking hold. One thing we need to do is remind public figures that the tone of public debate influences belief in conspiracies. There's really strong evidence of this. Every time we reach the most polarizing approach to politics, um, we do damage to people's trust in politics. Every scandal, does damage to people's trust in politics. Charities should be standing up for a better ideal of public debate and should be showing leadership in that area, not just leaving it to charities like Full Fact, whose job that is full time, but actually in your own area, whether it's health or international development or supporting refugees or even the arts, all of us are affected by the quality of debate um, and all of us need to stand up for what good looks like. Secondly, on the prevention side, don't leave information gaps. Very often, misinformation fills information gaps. Um, we saw this, for example, around the 5G misinformation. You may remember last year, there were people harassing telecoms workers and attacking 5G buildings and infrastructure because they believed that mobile phone masks would give them COVID. Um, this is the latest in a decades-long generation of false beliefs about radio waves and their health effects. It was completely predictable, and I know it's completely predictable because we published a report saying it was going to happen and saying that the best way to prevent it was to get reliable public health information out there for Public Health England to step in and actually make sure there was reliable information about the health effects of mobile phone infrastructure. But they failed to do that. And so a year later, we were dealing with... Uh, telecoms workers being assaulted, infrastructure being attacked, and having to deal with that as a criminal problem. So not letting these information gaps arise and actually looking for where there are vacuums of information in your area is really important and stepping up to fill them. And then finally, a really positive thing we can do is teaching the public how we can defend ourselves against conspiracy beliefs. People aren't always aware of the tactics that conspiracy supporters use to spread misinformation, the way they kick up dust by sowing doubt. They don't necessarily need to persuade you to believe everything they believe, but if they make you doubtful of what you can trust, that may be enough for their purposes. And so we often see disinformation campaigns whose job is just to make you doubt whether your vote will actually be counted fairly, just to make you doubt whether that vaccine is safe, just enough to do the damage, even if it doesn't persuade you. So telling people about the tactics of conspiracy supporters, telling people that disinformation campaigns are happening uh, in fields that they're affecting is a really important thing that charities can do to help people be on guard and therefore be less at risk from misinformation. And I think as, as we've kind of referenced, there are so many charities that are going to have cause areas that overlap with areas that are rife with misinformation. You know, we've talked about health, but yeah, the environment, refugees. But I think a lot of charities might have a sort of hesitance about getting involved in things that are seen as, you know, quote unquote, small p political, you know, that that kind of that there is there is a fear, you know, and, and for various kind of cultural reasons that we've talked about a lot on the podcast. There are there are some charities will have hes hesitancy getting involved in public debate in quite this way. But your view is very much that charities do have a role to play into in sort of tackling this information head on. 
Absolutely. And all the evidence is that if you leave misinformation unchallenged, it does more harm than if you try to challenge it. So the question is, how do you do that effectively? Let me go back in my um, my life in the charity sector. I, I had the great privilege of working for a guy called Colin Lowe, who was chairman of the Royal National Institute of Blind People um, for a few years. And I worked on the Equality Act um, and on other disability rights issues. And then when I, I got involved in starting Full Fact, I ended up leading Full Fact in 2010. The Welfare Reform Act was going through Parliament, a big reform of the benefit system. And you might remember it. The government was rolling the pitch for for this, these policies, basically benefit cuts, um, by trying to present disability benefits as routinely being abused and lots of people who are actually capable of being in work um, claiming disability benefits. And they were doing that by wildly mis misrepresenting the official data on disability benefits and treating, pretending people who were chronically ill were capable of work when that's not what even the government's own system said. It was a disinformation campaign run by our own government. It's really important to recognize that that does happen. And it was um, strongly featured in sympathetic media. And I'll always remember a letter we got, an email from a, a reader called Jane um, back when we were covering the welfare reform bill. She said this, my carer reads the Daily Mail. She believes the stories printed in the mail are true, no matter how many times I point, try to point out the reality of how the system actually works. Just like the vast majority of readers, she thinks if it's in the paper, it must be true. This constant barrage of misinformation has most definitely caused or contributed significantly to the increased number of verbal and physical attacks on the disabled, as represented in recent crime figures. Anecdotal reports among disabled people are truly shocking, from people in wheelchairs being spat at to having their cars vandalised. Walking with a stick is now an invitation for abuse. The disabled, including me, are terrified. Apart from being a heartbreaking reminder of the cumulative impact of being misrepresented for so many different communities, it's also a reminder that we can do quite a lot to tackle that kind of abusive behaviour. When Jane wrote to us, we were able to respond. We took that evidence to the Select Committee on Work and Pensions, which questioned ministers on why the government was misrepresenting these issues and the consequences of that and what they were doing to fix it. We took it to the UK Statistics Authority, which issued a ruling preventing ministers from briefing out official statistics, which hadn't been independently published by official statisticians, and stopped the way they were misrepresenting this data from happening again. And we took it to the Le Leveson inquiry in press standards as well. And that changed the corrections processes for newspapers. So before, while you weren't able to get a correction to newspaper articles if you weren't mentioned in them, now you can. We were able to achieve real change off the back of that problem which Jane was living through and really having her life you know, spoiled by, just harmed by. Change is possible. And charities of all organisations ought to know that and stand up for that. Of course, you've already given a lot of uh, good advice there about what charities can practically do. I guess what I was going to jump in and ask was for charities who are deciding to engage with this and, and because it's such an important part of their mission, um, what advice would you give for kind of also keeping their staff safe and preserving their staff well-being if they're going to take on the the kind of the labor of going out there and and facing misinformation and abuse and and putting them out out there to do the important work of trying to correct that and and bring that value yeah that that's a really important question and it's one that i think um 
needs to be asked more often in this field. We're still getting to grips with um, just how nasty online debate can be. Let me maybe talk about two different approaches you can take to this problem because I think they have different consequences. Um, one is the approach full fact takes. We don't have skin in the game of any particular debate. We're not there to get any particular outcome. We're a charity that exists to promote education and citizenship. We're about other people making up their own minds, um, whatever way they choose to make up their mind about a topic. And that means we give people information and then they run with it. If we make sure you have reliable information about a vaccine, your choice as to whether or not to get vaccinated is your choice. We've got no, no job to do of persuading you to make one choice or another. But actually, most charities aren't like that. Most charities are there to make a case for something beyond accuracy in public life. And if you want to do that, you might do something very different than what Full Fact does. We call out bad behavior. We... Um, challenge those who mislead others to correct the record. We point out to people when they're wrong. And all of those things, however carefully we try to do them, can get a hostile response, sometimes from some of the most powerful people and institutions in the country. And we're designed for that. We're built with a nonpartisan board. We're built with very independent funding and so on. We're built to be in fights of that sort. Most charities aren't in the same way. But actually, most persuasion doesn't happen just by giving people information. Most persuasion happens by giving people a new idea, something to hold on to. Most persuasion talks to the emotions, not just to the brain. And full fact won't do that. It's not our job to make you feel differently about any topic. Um, but let's, you know, this, this story that happened this week, this awful um, incident of people standing in front of a lifeboat trying to get it not to launch to rescue people at risk in the sea. Now, actually, nobody needs to talk to them and give them a list of facts. If anyone wants to stop them doing that life-threatening behavior, they need a different story, a different idea, a different thing to care about, a different reason to care. So if you're a charity that wants to get involved in a fight about standards in public life, and it is a fight, there's no doubt about that, then actually you need to build from the ground up on that. You need to build your reputation. You need to build your independence. You need to recruit staff telling them that you are going into a certain set of risks and they need to be prepared for that. But if you're a charity that wants to bring a better story to a certain area, because that's what you stand up for, it's not always necessarily about confronting things head on. Um, if your job is to persuade people to think differently about something, sometimes it's about bringing a new perspective. And I think one of the most powerful examples of that is the change in attitude to same-sex marriage, which has been more and more driven by telling stories about people in love and making love the common factor, not by rationalist arguments about human rights or anything else. Those kinds of tactics are available to a much wider kind, range of organizations without needing to be as prepared for hostile reactions. But the reality is you cannot protect your staff from it completely. So all you can do is support people when they are going through that. So we have to be prepared for those kinds of interventions and have those tools in our toolkit. But we also have to know that there is no way of completely stepping in and preventing people having to deal with this stuff. And actually, it's one of the, the 
the many things I respect my colleagues for is being prepared to stand up in in the way that they do. Fantastic. And I'll make sure to pop the link to the report you mentioned earlier and links to how people can get in touch with you in the show notes and in the story on our website when this goes out as well. Thank you so much, Will. It's been great to talk to you today. Each week, we're bringing you a good news bulletin, positive or quirky news stories that we've spotted in the sector. So to kick us off, here's one related to that RNLI story from earlier. So listeners to the podcast and readers on the website will remember that back in August, Simon Harris launched a GoFundMe page to raise money for the RNLI to buy a hovercraft and name it the Flying Farage. So this was after the right-wing political figure and failed parliamentary candidate, Nigel Farage, accused the RNLI of being, quote, a taxi service for illegal immigration, for rescuing people who get into trouble while attempting to enter the UK across the English Channel. So the fundraiser eventually raised more than £122,000 for the RNLI, um, although eventually they did decide for various reasons it wasn't appropriate for them to buy a hovercraft and call it the Flying Farage, but they are going to spend it on essential equipment and boats for the RNLI. So anyway, that was back in August. um, And as as we've heard, we've had this incident in Hastings, And uh, that has prompted Simon Harris to launch another GoFundMe. Um, Fantastically, this one is entitled Give Lifeboats Rockets and Stop Idiots Blocking Them. Um, So this is on GoFundMe. And uh, he says, I'm raising money to fit lifeboats with rocket launchers so they can blast idiot gammons who try to stop them launching to save lives at sea. Um, and he says if we raise more than the target, we may upgrade them all to death rays instead. Of course, he's added a little note underneath saying, in the event that it is impractical to fit heavy artillery to lifeboats, all funds should be donated to the RNLI instead to use however they see fit. So they've got a £250,000 goal. Uh, currently, they've raised £404. But in fairness, this was created 17 hours ago, and that has gone up by about £100 since I checked before we started recording. So yeah, we will pop that in the show notes. But yeah, I rather, I just love this response to people being awful in the national media or people being awful in real life um and yeah with with humor and with you know hopefully seeing some benefit for a charity that is doing incredible work whoever they happen to be rescuing that that is my good news story for the week emily i believe you've got one for us i do i do uh and this is a story about a very good boy The Dogs Trust Rehoming Centre in Loughborough uh, put out a plea a while ago asking if anybody was willing to take on a stray two-year-old Labrador called Bailey. The centre was worried they wouldn't be able to find a home for him because of his personality, which has been described as being, quote, untrainable, unsociable, rude and stubborn. Um, Just FYI, Bailey, if you're listening, I'm sure that's a very unfair caricature. Uh, but that's what that's what they called him. Uh, but this was not enough to deter the Essex Fire Service dog handler Graham Curry, who heard about Bailey and offered to take him on uh, for a six-week trial. So Bailey was put to the test by the Essex County Fire and Rescue Service, and within days he was recruited to the team. After it turned out, he had incredible natural talents as a search dog. In fact, Bailey is so good at what he does that the fire service said he could be on active duty as early as April next year, even though it can typically take up to three years to train a search dog. Graham says that Bailey is one of the most natural search dogs he has ever seen and that nothing phases him. He has no fears. And Louise Crawford from the Dogs Trust said he is doing an amazing job. He is really loved by Graham and is truly part of his family. 
We are delighted and super proud. So it turned out Bailey was a very good boy after all, um, which which we all knew. Nobody had any doubts. No doubts about you, Bailey. So we'll pop uh, links to that in the uh, story on the website so you can just go and see a picture of Bailey because he's a very cute Labrador. That's all from us this week. We'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you to our guest, Will Moy, our sponsor, Ansvar, and our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week.